Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. From CAFE, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. There were sort of two trials going on. The substantive trial of what the actual facts were and what the evidence was. And then there was a whole political trial going on. So I like to think we won the actual substantive trial and we lost the uh, political trial. That's Dan Goldman. He's the House Intelligence Committee's senior advisor and director of investigations. You might know him as the lead counsel for the House Democrats. He was one of only two staff lawyers tapped to publicly question 12 impeachment witnesses who testified before the House. But what you may not know is that Dan is a former SDNY prosecutor who used to work for me. A very skilled trial lawyer who has taken on Russian crime networks and mobs, there is no case too complex for Dan. In this special episode, featuring an exclusive interview with Dan Goldman, we go a bit longer than usual, diving deep into his experiences serving on the House Intel Committee and talking about what went on behind the scenes. We talk about his approach to questioning witnesses and crafting arguments, the Democrats' strategy, the Senate's handling of the impeachment trial, and the significance of Trump's acquittal. But first, a short ad break. We'll be right back. Stay tuned. Dan Goldman, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Preet. So I called you to ask you to be on, and we we're trying to schedule this post-trial. And you said, you know, this week would work for you. And I said, oh, is the house in recess? And you said, no, but I'm in recess. <laughs> so, so they gave you a little time off? Not really. I'll be uh, heading back uh, for a couple days, but I did take an uh, extra few days after the trial. You've been working very hard. Yeah, so, pretty much seven days a week for the last six months. You have so. been, some of which has been public, some of which has not been. We'll talk about both aspects of that. You're going to tell us a lot of secrets, maybe. I'll do my best. So, so here's how I want you to think about the interview. I was contemplating talking to you today, and it occurred to me that this conversation we're about to have is actually very similar to conversations we had pursuant to a very important tradition in our office. And you may recall what I'm talking about. And that is, after a trial, the prosecutors and the staff who worked on the trial would come and report the verdict to the U.S. attorney, whether it was a guilty verdict, a mistrial, or an acquittal. So this is just like that. And you'll recall that, you know, you and I have done that on a number of occasions when we both worked in SDNY. And, you know, you talk a lot of smack about the defense lawyer and about the judge and everything else. So why don't you just pretend <laughs> that it's just you and me, just like old times. <laughs> and, and so first... What was, the, what was the verdict? 
The verdict was uh, uh, technically it was an acquittal. Technically it was an acquittal. Yes. I think that's, that's called an acquittal. Was that your first acquittal, Dan? That was my first acquittal. All right, yes. I'm sorry to hear that. Do you blame yourself? I do. I do. It's <laughs> entirely my fault. Is there something you could have done better in, in, in the way of advocacy? Um, well, you know, we were, as a staff member, you know, we're behind the scenes a little bit, but I, I do think I was that, kidding. I was kidding. I, was I kidding. know. You we, were, everyone knows. We we're going to uh, talk about the fix being in in a moment. Well, yeah, but I think what I guess the point I would try to, uh, that I would make in response to that is that there were sort of two trials going on. There was the substantive trial of what the actual facts were and what the evidence was. And then, unlike the trials that you and I were familiar with when we were prosecutors, there was a whole political trial going on, which is just a totally separate animal. So I like to think we won the actual substantive trial and we lost the uh, political trial. But the jurors voted against yes, conviction. Absolutely. Let's go back a few steps. So you were a prosecutor in SDNY for about a decade? That's right. Then you left, and you had a lot of great cases. Maybe we'll get to some of them, including as a mob prosecutor and as a securities fraud prosecutor. So you had a lot of experience. Um, I know firsthand because I worked with you. Then you left the office, and you began doing other things. You became, as Donald Trump would later say, a TV lawyer, which is interesting that he criticized you for that implicitly. I don't think it was a criticism. Oh, it was a compliment. I, I think I think in Donald <laughs> Trump's view, if you're a t if you're on television, then you are qualified, and that I think has been uh, exemplified by a lot of his hires. Uh, may I may I may I make the following <laughs> remark, Dan? Even though this is an audio format, you are right out of central casting as a TV lawyer. It's <laughs> <laughs> a TV. Probably Trump would hire you. You have no mustache, <laughs> and he likes that. If you do have a mustache, you get fired pretty quickly. We're going to get to the mustache. Gentleman John Bolton a little later in the program. So at some point, and you're also at, you were also at the Brennan Center, and you're sort of figuring out other things that you want to do. And I and you were a very notable presence on television, commenting like I do also on the Mueller investigation and all sorts of things that affect the rule of law in the country. And then you went to go work in the early part of 2019, March of 2019, for Adam Schiff, Chairman Adam Schiff. Before I ask you why you chose to do that, I guess my other question is. What was it like to work for the second best boss you've ever had? <laughs> <laughs> it was uh, it was it was a great experience, but nothing is like working oh, for you, Pre. Of right. course, right. you read that perfectly. But it was, explain. You live in New York. You have a family. We don't have to get into the details, but you have you have kids. You have a family that you had to separate from to go do this work. What was what was the calling for you to go do that work? There were a couple of things that jumped out to me. And as much as I enjoyed the TV work and did feel like there was somewhat of a greater purpose to explain to America this insular world of criminal federal criminal prosecutions that, that you and I uh, experienced, and, and at the time during 2018, the Mueller investigation was all the rage and all the news. And so there was some value in that. But when the Democrats won the House, it felt like there was an, a unique opportunity to um, go inside the arena rather than be commenting from the outside. And I had watched Adam Schiff uh, on, on television and in other ways and was incredibly impressed with him. Maybe we'll get to talk about this and had a chance meeting with him in a green room in uh, 30 Rock in, in New York for the Brian Williams show at 11 p.m. one random night. It just it felt like there was an opportunity to get back into the substantive work and do whatever I could to provide some sort of oversight and a check and balance on 
this president. At the time, there was the expectation that the Mueller report would come out and that there would be a fair amount of work that flowed from that in the Intelligence Committee because that was the congressional committee that was doing the parallel Russia investigation, at least until then Chairman Devin Nunes stopped the investigation in March of 2018. But Chairman Schiff had some ideas of trying to ferret out some of the financial conflicts and the uh, foreign interference risks that um, some of Donald Trump's business interests may have had since he did not disclose his tax returns and did not disclose so much of his own financial arrangements. So there were a couple of things that drew me down to D.C. and to work for the Intelligence Committee. But impeachment was not one of them. Uh, That was not why I went down there. It was generally not the committee that handles impeachment. That's a judiciary committee. It truly was to work uh, right on the front lines with Chairman Schiff and and do whatever he wanted and, and the committee wanted to do. So about 15 years before you made that transition from New York, federal prosecutor to the Hill, I did the same thing. And I'm wondering what, in your experience, it was like whether there was some culture shock from going to federal prosecutor's office, which was where you sort of cut your teeth, to going to Capitol Hill? There was a, a, there are tremendous differences, and there was a lot of culture shock. I think the two things that jump out the most is um, I never understood the real power of a grand jury subpoena until I had to issue congressional subpoenas. Which is, which is super lame in comparison, am I right? It, it's, it's a different animal. Uh, obviously, there is smaller, not the threat of imprisonment. A smaller, weaker animal. It, it is, it certainly, if, if you have a recipient of the congressional subpoena who does not adhere to our general principles of the rule of law. Then the, you write a the, book. Uh, the <laughs> the consequences for violating a congressional subpoena are far less severe than the consequences for violating a grand jury subpoena. And uncertain. Uh, and very uncertain. Right. Um, and this was something that we grappled with over the last year as more and more subpoenas were being defied. But the other thing that was a very interesting change is whereas everything that you do as a federal prosecutor, for the most part, is confidential – not just the grand jury material, but every investigation is confidential within the office until you make a decision to go overt about it. But the confidentiality was such, uh, you took it so much for granted as a prosecutor. And in Congress, it's almost the exact opposite. Nothing is confidential. And, And I don't say that pejoratively as if everybody leaks, which is true. But the pressure to apply to people to comply with a subpoena or other request is really public pressure. It's political pressure. And so it is intended in some investigations and some investigative techniques. What I had to quickly learn is how to use the public pressure from going overt and making investigative steps that are public to try to ratchet up the pressure. And, And frankly, I know we'll get to it, but that was a huge part of how this impeachment investigation got going. That was my experience also. As an actual federal federal prosecutor or head of an office, at the most, you make an announcement at the start of charges to explain what the charges are, and then maybe you make a statement at the end or when there's a conviction where the jury makes a, a determination or there's a guilty plea. Imagine doing it the way that members of Congress, chairmen, and otherwise do it, which is every day there's sort of an update on what the investigation is, where it's going, and everything else. But as you say, 
That's where the oxygen comes from. So the public sentiment is on the side of pursuing the investigation because it's not done by federal prosecutors. It's done by elected representatives when it's in the Congress, and you need public support to be able to continue to do it. The thrust of the power that you get from doing oversight or doing investigations in Congress is entirely from the public will. And so, yes, absolutely, you need to have the public on your side with you as you are uh, moving forward with anything. And, it, and that is what ultimately can change minds. So you start at the beginning of March of 2019. About three or four weeks later, the Mueller report is delivered to the attorney general. And then many weeks after that, too many weeks in my view, it becomes public mostly. What did that mean for your work? Well, the Mueller report and the rollout of the Mueller report was not something that we were prepared for in the way that it happened. And it came out in drips and drabs. And there's no question that now looking back, that the initial letter that Attorney General Barr issued summarizing the report was misleading at best. And we were expecting the report to drop and it to be released in short order. Was that naive in retrospect? No, I don't think it was naive because I, I, I think, well, I personally, I'll speak for myself, I don't think we have encountered an attorney general like Bill Barr in at least a generation. And How do you mean that? Well, I think as, as what we're seeing over the course of the last year during the time that he has, has been attorney general, and Chairman Schiff talks about this a lot, that he is truly views himself, certainly the president views himself this way, but he views himself also as some version of an arm of the president, that there is very, very little independence between the Department of Justice and the rest of the executive branch, as has traditionally been the case since Watergate. And so Bill Barr at that point was very new. And I don't think that anyone anticipated that his letter summarizing the Mueller report would be so misleading or that it would take four weeks to do redactions that by all accounts had more or less been teed up by the special counsel's office. Though from the face of the letter itself, there was reason to be concerned, was there not? Because he essentially took the next step and basically say that he was exonerating the president, even though there was language in the report, specifically addressing the issue of exoneration. And Bob Mueller wrote, you know, we can neither exonerate nor charge. Fair? That's right. So Bill Barr and, you know, what appeared, I don't know how long he actually understood all of the evidence and all of, or whether he ever understood all the evidence, but it took him two days to make a decision that the president did not obstruct justice, whereas Bob Mueller, over the course of two years, did not reach that conclusion. And I think you you make the right point that that was a real jolt. And particularly at the time, remember, pre, we, we didn't know what Mueller said. So all we had was what Bill Barr said. And so the, the answer is whether we were naive, I... I Perhaps you could say we were, but it certainly, as things trickled out, it became clear that this was a very aggressive attorney general and someone who was very willing to do as much as he could to, at that point, I would say, at least protect the presidency. I think it has become more clear that he has a greater and further interest in protecting the president himself. 
We'll be right back after this short break. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up, and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Squarespace. In this day and age, if you're starting a new project, one of the first things on your to-do list is creating a website. That might seem a bit scary at first, especially if you've never done it before. But there are tools out there that make it easy for anyone to create their own site, like Squarespace. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform that you can use to build a website and help people find your ventures. Creating a website with Squarespace is straightforward and painless, even if it's your first time making one. Whether you want to sell your products or a service, or need a place to host your blog or portfolio, Squarespace can help you get your name out there and makes it easy to find on the web. They have plenty of tools to help make your first website look pretty great too, all while customizing it to fit your particular needs. Because your site is your own, and it shouldn't be fit into a one-size-fits-all box. Get the functionality and the unique look that you need. Head to squarespace.com tuned to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain using code TUNED. So the Mueller report is done. Bob Mueller testifies. It was not the position of Adam Schiff, Nancy Pelosi, and others that articles of impeachment should be drafted based on what Bob Mueller found as of, say, July or August of last year. As far as I was aware, there were never real conversations about whether an article of impeachment should be drafted up July 25th, which was the day after Bob Mueller testified. So that was still possibly on the table, even with respect to the Mueller stuff? Well, the, the Judiciary Committee was continuing to do their investigation as a follow-on to Mueller's testimony that they hoped, for example, would have included the testimony of Don McGahn. Now, as you know from reading the volume two, Don McGahn was sort of the, the key witness to many of the acts of obstruction. He was told by President Trump to fabricate evidence. He was directed by President Trump to uh, fire the special counsel. He was a central player. And the idea was that the Judiciary Committee in particular would try to follow up and get his testimony, which they had asked for, by the way, I think in April. And so I, I guess the decision, certainly there was no decision to move forward with impeachment based on that. But I don't think it had been taken off the table as of the, the August recess for Congress. But fair to say there was no great momentum in favor of impeachment based on the Mueller report. That, that, is, that was clear. So now we get to late summer of 2019. Remind folks 
the first way in which the public came to understand that there was some issue brewing with respect to Ukraine. On September 9th, the Intelligence Committee and the Oversight Committee and the Foreign Affairs Committee sent letters to the State Department and the White House, which effectively announced an investigation that had been internally long discussed among the three committees to investigate what at that point was primarily Rudy Giuliani's very public efforts to pressure Ukraine to do these investigations that we now are so familiar with, and that it seemed unusual, odd, and certainly worth investigating as to whether he was actually doing some sort of foreign policy or what what was he actually doing? We still don't know. <laughs> well, he was been very clear and he said it was not foreign policy. And I think the Senate trial made it very clear. And, and even the president's lawyers conceded that Rudy Giuliani was not doing foreign right. policy. So September 9th is when that public announcement is made. When did you and other members of the Intelligence Committee become aware of there being something to investigate? We uh, were aware back as of mid-May when there was a big uh, New York Times article where Giuliani said he was going to go to Ukraine to what he said is, I'm not meddling in an election, I'm meddling in an investigation. Um, We relate it, and he was very overt about it, very public about it, and said that he was going to investigate these, wanted Ukraine or push Ukraine to investigate these two allegations. And then he quickly announced that he wasn't going to go. Well, that triggered some interest within Congress. And then over the course of the summer, we started looking into, in a variety of different ways with the two other committees, what was going on and and whether we could, what we could glean to be going on privately before we move forward publicly. But then there was a catalyst, which became known as the whistleblower report. And that date of September 9th happens to be a very critical date because it was not only the day that the three committees finally announced this um, investigation, but it was also the date that the Intelligence Committee received notification from the Inspector General that there was a whistleblower complaint that he found to be credible and of an urgent concern and therefore fell within the whistleblower statute and should have been turned over to Congress but had been withheld from Congress. How big a deal was that within the committee? Was that a holy crap moment? Was that just something that was incremental to what you were already thinking about? Well, there was nothing on the face of it that um, indicated that it related to Ukraine. It was clear that there was some, to be honest, I can't remember if it was that letter or very soon thereafter that we learned that it was related in some fashion to the president. And we learned that because there were references to privileges or executive privilege, and they could only mean one thing. And so the next day after we got this notice from the inspector general, we wrote to the director of national intelligence, the acting director of national intelligence, saying there's no basis to withhold this. And you have to remember, a complaint like this had never been withheld from the intelligence community in the 20 years that this statute has been enacted. And even even uh, complaints that are not credible, and most are not found to be either credible or an urgent concern, they're still turned over. Um, so this was so that completely, was a clue. yes, <laughs> that was, it was a big clue that there was something going on here. But again, we didn't necessarily know. 
And I think it was at some point in that week that we got some degree of confirmation that it was connected to Ukraine. So people at this point will expect me to ask the obvious question, among other questions. What was the interaction between the committee and the whistleblower? I'm going to reiterate what the committee has said publicly, which is that the whistleblower reached out to committee staff, as is very standard practice, and gave, I think, very, very broad outlines of what was going on, or that they, that I think that the whistleblower had some degree of concern. And the staff of the Intelligence Committee directed the whistleblower to go to get a lawyer and to reach out to the inspector general, who is designated by the statute to receive precisely the sort of complaint that ultimately was filed. So Chairman Schiff has said since he does not know the identity of the whistleblower, did not meet with the whistleblower. Is that all correct? That is correct. But you can't say who did have the contact? I cannot. Can you say if it was you? I cannot say anything about this. Okay. So then stuff begins to happen at a fairly fast pace. Remind us when the whistleblower report was made public and when the the so-called transcript, which is not a transcript, of the call between President Trump and President Zelensky of Ukraine was made public. So the the timeline is that September 9th, we get notice, which is a Monday, we got notification of this complaint. September 10th, we write to the acting director of national intelligence and say to him, there's no basis for you to withhold this. You must turn it over by Friday, the 13th, or we'll be forced to issue a subpoena. We get nothing by that Friday, issue a subpoena. And the subpoena was not only for the documents, it was also for his testimony. Not a federal grand jury subpoena, but one of these weaker animal subpoenas. <laughs> except that, yes, except that the one thing that I would say that I've learned over the last year is a subpoena for a government official to testify before Congress is not something that generally is taken lightly and is not something that is frequently defied and is certainly not something that can be defied without some sort of legal basis. So it was not an insignificant move move exactly to subpoena the acting DNI to testify. And the subpoena goes out on, on Friday the 13th for the acting DNI to testify on the 19th, the Thursday. And the acting DNI was clearly in a very uncomfortable position because he was following dictates of both the White House and the Department of Justice, who is the final word on legal matters within the administration. Yet he understood that this was unprecedented and unusual. So now we get to the day before that testimony is supposed to take place, the 25th of Wednesday. What happens? So in the morning, the White House decides to declassify and release the call record for the July 25th call between President Trump and Zelensky. And that preceded by a few hours, the Intelligence Committee receiving a copy of the complaint, of the whistleblower complaint, in the afternoon of July 25th, the afternoon before the acting DNI was going to testify the next morning. Let's pause on that for a second. So you get the call record. You accurately call it a call record. The president calls it transcript. It says on the first page, this cannot be repeated enough, On the first page of that call record, it says, this is not a transcript, correct? It does. I think that's been over 
blown a little yeah, bit. How so? Um, I think the testimony during our investigation revealed that there were potentially two things that had been left out. One was the critical word barisma, which was left out, and the other was a, a small omission of a video, reference to a video. So you think it's largely an accurate transcript? I do. I, we have no, I should put it this way, we have no reason to believe that it's not. Well, that's what, it, a lot of people speculate that there must be a lot more missing because they understand that the length of the call was X and the page of the transcript don't seem to reflect the length of the call. Any, yes, well, remember that? that you've got translations going back and forth. So Zelensky spoke primarily in Ukrainian and so there was a fair amount of translation. It doubles the time. It doubles the time, exactly. Were you surprised when the call record was released? We were very surprised. And the reaction... Like on a scale of 1 to 10. <laughs> How surprised? And, and could you do this for us? Could you paint the scene? Where were you? Were you at your desk? Were you in Adam Schiff's office? Like, what was going on? I was in Adam Schiff's office. We were gathered there, understanding that it was going to be released. And we had no idea what was going to be in it. And it is released, and we make copies, and we're all sitting there reading it. Silently to yourselves, or does someone do a dramatic reading? Silently to ourselves, while at various points people start to blurt out aspects of it, uh, or just sort of amazement, because I don't know what the calculation was as to why to release it, whether it was to try to get out in front of it, given that the complaint was going to be released. But to us, reading it, it felt much more damning than we would have expected it to be. Because my view, as a rational person, when I heard that it was being released and, you know, the public didn't get to see it for a while longer than you did, was it must be exonerating in some way. It must be exculpatory in some way. Otherwise, why would you release this thing instead of fighting about it? So your reaction was it was very damning. Yeah, and and frankly, once we realized that this complaint was being withheld and that there was a call between Trump and Zelensky that was at the heart of the complaint, which was publicly reported, we were expecting months-long fight to get this stuff. Uh, we were not expecting to get either of those documents nearly as quickly as we did. And I agree with you, Preet. It, it felt a little bit like their hand was forced because the complaint was going to be released now. They had made that decision clearly. But they didn't have to make that decision either. They didn't. So that is a whole separate decision, and that's where I go back to, I don't know what was going on with the yeah. D.N.I. McGuire and but his can I ask efforts. You the counter, can I ask you the counterfactual? And other people speculated about this, but you're in a unique position to opine on it, if you so choose, Daniel. If the president, if the administration had chosen not to release at that moment the whistleblower complaint, and therefore also not release the call record, do you think we'd be sitting here talking about a concluded impeachment trial at this point? At this point, absolutely not. Um, there's certainly the timing of it. So speaking as have... a lawyer, you know, tactically and or strategically, did the president and his people, from their perspective, make an error in releasing those two documents? From a tactical perspective, now that we know what what is in the call record, there is really nothing exculpatory in it. It is only incriminating. And it was the genesis of this months-long investigation that, that ultimately resulted in the president getting impeached for life and acquitted at a you Senate trial. Impeached, you just say impeached for life. Did Nancy Pelosi tell you to come say that? She did not tell me to come say that, but I am a great admirer of Nancy Pelosi, and I think that that is something that they, it is an accurate statement. And, you know, even even getting a Republican senator to vote to convict yeah. him based on the evidence. Can I ask you another question about the lawyering here? So once they released 
the call record, and the whistleblower complaint. Obviously, there's lots of other information that you guys then sought. I naively thought at the time, if they've already released this stuff, which is very damning, how do you in good conscience and with a straight face not let other people cooperate and not release other stuff? So I expected other stuff to begin flowing because maybe the president thought that stuff was exculpatory also. What level of surprise did you have that after the release of those two things, there was basically a shutdown? We were surprised. And between the the release of the call record and the whistleblower complaint and the October 8th letter from the White House counsel, Pat Cipollone, which very definitively stated that the president was not going to participate in the impeachment inquiry, we received the WhatsApp messages from Kurt Volker who I think the day after the whistleblower complaint was released publicly resigned and he came in and testified the following Thursday. And prior to his day before his testimony, he released what proved to be not all of his WhatsApp messages, but a big tranche of WhatsApp messages. So you and I are used to, you know, you get documents and that that is what guides the an investigation along these lines. You get them first and then you do your talking to the witnesses. A- absolutely. And that is something that is a little bit different about Congress as well, because there is some aspect of testimony that jogs some of the documents loose. And that's a tactic that is used in Congress that would not necessarily be used in a, cr- a prosecution. But we fully, I mean, I'm not sure we expected to get full cooperation, but we certainly did not expect to get zero documents after. Especially after they had released some stuff. And also as an aside, and we can get to this a little later, it gives the lie to this whole notion that the president had some degree of a legal basis to just defy his subpoenas for documents because he released the two call records yeah. that he thought, rightly or wrongly, were going to help him. So it can only <laughs> follow that if there was some document in his possession that he felt like would help him or would exonerate him, he would release it because he did it. Wait, let me see if I get this straight. You don't think the invocations of privilege are being taken in good faith, Dan Goldman? I think it became very clear during the Senate trial that the House managers did not believe and the House did not believe that the legal assertions, uh, and I won't even say of privilege because they weren't really privileges, were not taken in good faith. They seemed to follow on with the president's directive to obstruct uh, and defy all subpoenas. Right. So September 9th was this important inflection point, as you described. Then September 25th, these materials are released. What is the first moment when the word impeachment was spoken by people like Nancy Pelosi and Adam Schiff in relation to Ukraine? It preceded that September 25th. So, the, so explain, Pelosi, that, explain that. That's a confusing point for a lot of folks. You had a multi-year-long investigation by Bob Mueller. Nobody wants to proceed to impeachment, even use that word, really. Then you had a period of 14 to 16 days. Those documents are not released. There's, in anticipation, people think that it might be serious and maybe evidence of misconduct by the president. Explain how all of a sudden that word was on the lips of people like Nancy Pelosi. The week before, so Monday was the 23rd, the speaker made the announcement that the Ukraine matter would be included within the impeachment umbrella on the 24th. The call record and and the whistleblower complaint, the call record is released on the 25th. The whistleblower complaint is released to the public on the 26th. But the week before, there had been a ton of news reporting about the substance of this complaint and about this phone call between 
Donald Trump and Vladimir Zelensky on July 25th. And so it was out there in the public sphere and there was a lot of reporting. So it felt like this was this was valid and supported and you had multiple news outlets matching each other. So it became very clear the the broad contours of what was going on here. And the critical difference, I think, from the speaker's perspective and the Democratic caucus is we've got someone now who's not obstructing a special counsel's inquiry, which is probably a crime and is bad, but we have someone using the authority of the president and the office of the presidency to pressure a foreign country to give him some sort of personal favor. And that is wholly different in kind than obstruction. Obstruction is bad. Obstruction should be prosecuted. It should be pursued. It was included as an article of impeachment because it is important. Our our criminal justice system cannot function. Our congressional oversight cannot function if people are obstructing Congress or obstructing justice. But this was different in kind. This was someone in a, in a way, frankly, that as we learned, had never been done in history, abused the power of his office uh, to solicit foreign interference in his own re-election campaign. So as you sit here now, having been a part of that, and you look back, are you sort of surprised and shocked about how quickly the mood changed from no impeachment to we got to have an impeachment inquiry? Because I'll tell you, from, from people from the outside, it seemed very abrupt and sudden. It was very sudden. And there was a pivotal moment when... Um, Some of the first-year representatives, all with some degree of military experience or intelligence uh, service experience, I think seven of them wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post that came out on that Monday, the 23rd, I believe, where they said, if these allegations are true and accurate, then the president has betrayed his duty to our country, has betrayed our national security, and we would move to support impeachment. Because what you got to realize is there are a lot of Purple District Democratic congressmen who were voted in 2018 in a wave, and they're in Trump districts. And so they're cautious about moving forward. And to those seven who are all in that, that category, this was over the line. And that was a very critical moment where all of a sudden there had been a lot of talk about impeachment and there were different camps within the Democratic Party, but it became very clear that the party was unified, that if if the allegations were true, that we would move forward with just an impeachment inquiry at the time. So now let's jump into the impeachment inquiry, since you brought it up. First, could you describe for people, because I think there's a lot of confusion about this and complaints about the impeachment inquiry process, could you describe in detail the basement bunker? Are there cobwebs? How big are the rats? Um, you have to descend multiple stairwells into the bowels of the earth. So this bunker thing has taken on a life of its own. And Republicans complained that these depositions were taken in a bunker. Am I correct that those depositions, there are many of them, how many depositions were taken? Uh, we had 17 witnesses in total, so 17. Am I correct that you were present for all of them? Yes. Okay. Describe the bunker. Well, I have somewhat of an affinity for the bunker because it's also... <laughs> My office. Uh, <laughs> Your office is, is in a bunker? Yes. My, uh, the Intelligence Committee, both Democrats and Republicans, are housed in a secured facility because we deal with top secret and very sensitive classified information. What building? So it is in the basement of the Capitol. It's in actually the third floor below the Capitol. Um, and I have gone to work there every day for a year, as have windowless Democrats, office. all windowless, 
and you know you have to keypad the door to get in. There's there are high protocols in terms of the security. The reason why these depositions were there is that it is a more private place than any other conference room in the Capitol. And it is the home to the Intelligence Committee, and and the Speaker had designated Adam Schiff as chairman of the Intelligence Committee to kind of be the leader of the uh, impeachment inquiry. And so that is where it, it was, and no cameras are allowed, I mean, there's because it's classified. Can I clarify something? So when, when the Republicans controlled the Intelligence Committee, were the depositions and interviews in connection with investigations always done in the penthouse? <laughs> The depositions were done in the exact same place that they were done for this impeachment inquiry under was Republican leadership. Was it called leadership. a bunker then? Uh, I, was, I don't believe it ever took on the super secret bunker um, uh, mantra that it has now. <laughs> All right. How big, how big is the room in which the interview you, – you call them depositions on interviews. There was a court reporter? Yes. A couple of them were actually interviews. The rest were depositions. There's always a court reporter. Stenographer for taking down everything verbatim. For everything uh, taken down verbatim. It was a three-committee joint investigation. So the Intelligence Committee, Oversight Committee, and Foreign Affairs Committee were all participating in the deposition. It was it, it was a sizable conference room uh, with a, a sort of rectangular conference table and then chairs behind it. And was it mostly staff or also members? Combination? It's a combination. Democratic and Republican staff members were there for... All of them from you all the three lead, committees. You were the lead staffer for the Intelligence Committee? Generally, yeah. I was the lead, and I would I probably took the lead on most of the depositions. Yeah, um, what about Chairman Schiff? Was he coming? Chairman Schiff was at every one, maybe save one, I think, at the tail end. That, is that is that nerve-wracking when your boss is there while you're asking questions sometimes? Um, it, it was a little nerve-wracking right at the beginning, mostly just because this was an unusual circumstance, and you had a room full of members of Congress, uh, and but just, there but just I am Dem- asking these questions. But just Democrats, right? <laughs> they were just Democrats? I mean, it should have been easier. Democrats. Because it was only Democrats. I think up to 48 Republicans were permitted to uh, be in there, and there were always... They were? Shocking as it may be, given what you've heard, yes, there were 48 Republicans, and and there were several Republican congressmen who were there for every single one as well. Like, uh, like who? Jim Jordan, Mark Meadows... Um, I think Lee Zeldin was there for the vast majority of them. Devin Nunes? Um, Devin Nunes was not there for that many of them. Uh, and he w- if he did attend, he would pop in and pop out. He would not stay for very long. But Chairman Schiff was there for the entire duration of every deposition, except for sometimes when he stepped out to go vote. Um, and so he sat at the end, and I would sit next to him, and then there was a co-counsel of mine who would sit next to me, and we would often go back and forth with the the questioning. And the questioning was led by the staff members. And members were able generally at, to ask questions toward the end of it. Chairman Schiff often would jump in to ask questions at various points, um, was very engaged and is incredibly impressive, as, as I'm sure you know. And so while it was a little nerve-wracking at first, it became it became a lot of fun to do it with him. It was almost as if what we were accustomed to as a trial partner. You know, we would talk strategy about how we were going to approach it, what questions to ask, where to focus, uh, how to manage the interview and and react to how the witnesses were because you had a wide variety of witnesses. You had some witnesses who came in and were very open and then you had other witnesses in the depositions like Gordon Sondland who did not recall a whole lot of things. Was the game plan always to do a bunch of interviews in the so-called bunker, 
and then immediately decide whether you would proceed with articles of impeachment? Or had you contemplated early on this process going on for some time? In other words, I've often said, and now I have you here to answer the question, that you folks must have been operating under some clock, not a, not a real legal clock or constitutional clock, but maybe a political clock because the election was coming up. Explain how you were thinking about the clock. There was no deadline. There was, I know there are a lot of, you know, allegations and, and the Senate trial came out over and over that, that the House needed to get this done by Christmas. That was not the case at all. Frankly, when we started it, we had no idea where it was going to go. We had no idea what we were going to find. We had no idea how long it was going to be. We had no idea that we were going to get no documents. We had no idea that we were, whether we were going to get witnesses or not get witnesses. The way I used to describe it to people is that you would understand it was like being in the middle of a really grueling trial where the evidence changed every day. <laughs> right. And that doesn't happen in trials. When you go into a trial, you trials generally hard enough. know what the evidence is. Right. And, you know, you have a sense of what a witness will say. But, this was, but, you're, but be careful because this was not the trial. This right. was the grand jury proceeding. And, and I only meant that in the sense of that was how it felt just in terms of at every, every single day, there were new revelations, and it was coming at you fast and furious. Meanwhile, we're preparing for depositions for the next day. And those Kurt Volker text messages became kind of the nexus for the investigation right. that really guided us very much as we went forward. And it was critical, as, as Chairman Schiff has been very open about, it was very critical that these depositions were done in closed doors because, as you know well, Preet, you don't want these witnesses to match up their stories with each other, to see what someone said, and then be able to react to it or to tailor their testimony. And we were truly in a fact-finding mode. We did not know what went on, and we were trying to figure that out. And the best way to do that is to segregate witnesses and have them come in for closed depositions and not allow their agency counsel, who could then play that coordinating role for all of the witnesses to be present because we were partially investigating these agencies to have the target of the investigation sitting there runs counter to all good best practices for investigations. How much sleep were you getting during this time period when the depositions were taking place? Five or six hours a night. That's a lot. Yeah. I expect I expected less. It but varied, you have to be sometimes awake. four. Yeah. I mean it was an all day thing. We remember these depositions were ten hours. And you know, we we had a we have a terrific staff. Uh, well, all of the three committees were all pitching in. Well, we should mem- we should mention another great member of your staff. Dan Noble, Dan who Noble, was uh, another our, former SDNY and, and Dan and, and there's another former AUSA from the District of, of Maryland, Nick Mitchell, and there were folks from the Foreign Affairs Committee and the Oversight Committee, and everybody was pitching in together to sort of build out the outlines for the questions. And then the night before, we'd fine-tune them based on what we had heard. But remember, we were doing depositions day after day after day. It was oh, I a remember. breakneck <laughs> pace. And part of that was we expected to get some resistance. I don't think we ever anticipated getting as much resistance from the administration as we ultimately got, but we certainly expected to get resistance. Can we stop there for a second? And on the one hand, you could say we weren't expecting to get so much resistance, but in the face of the letter from Pat Cipollone directing everyone not to cooperate, weren't you also surprised in some ways about how much cooperation you did get from people who were still in the administration who came forward and basically honored the subpoena, but defied what seemed to be a directive from the White House counsel? Incredibly impressed with those individuals who I hope will go down in history as true American heroes because that letter came after Kurt Volker had testified, but I believe it was before 
Masha Ivanovich, who was really the first current employee of the executive branch to come in and testify. And she really paved the way because we had understood from George Kent's lawyer that if Masha Ivanovich testified that that was going to allow for George Kent to have a much easier time to testify. Fiona Hill was a former employee at that time, so she was in a slightly different situation. And at that point, the administration said that under the current circumstances, which were letter requests, that these people could not testify. But what we did, which I don't know that how much the public knows about it, is that we waited until the morning of the testimony to issue the subpoenas. And the first time we did this, we did it because we expected that we, we had no idea what to expect in terms of the resistance to the subpoenas. But the only real way to stop someone from testifying pursuant to a subpoena was to get a court order to do so. And so did you expect the White House to try to do that? We were prepared for that possibility. Why didn't they? I don't know. You'll, you'll have to get them on uh, yeah, so, well, the pod to uh, ask gonna, them the question. They're going to be on next. <laughs> uh, coming up later, <laughs> Pat Cipollone. Um, I mean, I would love to have him on. But was, were there any circumstances in which, you don't have to give details that are not appropriate to give, where you or someone else got on the phone with a requested witness or their counsel and tried to make a pitch as to why they should come? Or some came and some didn't without cajoling? I wouldn't use the word cajoling, but we were in regular communication. All of these witnesses had their their own personal counsel, very capable and able counsel who are very experienced in mostly in Washington, but, but elsewhere as well. We were in regular communication with them, and they were relaying the position that, that their client was taking, which was, if for the most part, at least in the initial phase, if they receive a subpoena from Congress, they're going to abide by the subpoena. And that's ultimately what happened. And and if I could just say one other thing about these witnesses, which you will, I think, appreciate, Preet, these are not your typical cooperating witnesses that we may have been used to yeah. prosecuting cases. Uh, these were some of the most impressive individuals I've ever come across. They were nonpartisan. They really just told you the balls and the strikes. They told you what they saw. They told you the facts. And the best part for us and the real way that we were only able to get to do this investigation, I, I truly believe, is that many of these witnesses took copious amounts of contemporaneous notes. It was like a prosecutor's dream to have a witness have all these notes. I mean, Bill Taylor had multiple different notepads depending on where he was, whether he was in the office, he had one notepad. Whether he was out of the office, he had another notepad. And everyone was taking notes. And they were, they were for the most part, other than, uh, well, for the most part, they were able to review their own notes before they testified. And they... They still had them in their possession. They still, well, they were still current employees. Right. And so they had them in their possession. Were they taking notes because it was their habit to always take notes, yes. no matter what? Or because these circumstances were peculiar to them and they wanted to have notes? So for the most part, it's because that is what they're trained to do. And they just take notes of everything so they remember things properly, not necessarily for testimony, but just down the road. There were a few occasions that we learned about that were very unique and special. George Kent in particular, I think he wrote four memos to file. Bill Taylor wrote a, a very what became a very well-known cable 
on August 29th, where he wrote to Secretary Pompeo in first-person cable, the only time he ever did that in his entire 50-year career, where he expressed his strong disagreement with the hold on security aid. So there were a few things that were very particular to this investigation, but the reason why it was valuable to us and part of the reason why a lot of the hearsay arguments that were parroted so much by the president and his defenders, I think incorrectly, kind of fall by the wayside because these people are testifying to their contemporaneous notes. Now, maybe technically it is hearsay, but in terms of reliability, it was about as reliable as you can get. Can I ask you a question that would be objectionable in court, but is perfectly permissible in um, the court of the podcast? And Congress, because everything's permissible <laughs> in Congress. Yes, we'll get to that also. Uh, how big a liar is uh, Gordon Sondland? So um, I, I'm not going to characterize him as a liar you or not object. a liar. It will be overruled. Um, I think that Gordon Sondland was more of what we encountered with witnesses who played some role in a scheme. And I'm not saying that he was would have been guilty in the scheme or not guilty, but he had a very central role. And I think what Gordon Sondland tried to do, and he is the best example for why closed depositions were essential in this case, is he tried to come in and toe a very, very fine line, say that he didn't remember a lot of things, provide a little bit, but not that much, And what then happened is you had a parade of witnesses, Bill Taylor that followed him, Tim Morrison that followed him, that had contemporaneous notes of conversations they had with Gordon Sondland, David Holmes, who ultimately came in at the tail end. They had contemporaneous notes and very specific recollections. And I think very quickly, Gordon Sondland realized that he was not going to be able to get away with this because the weight of the evidence really contradicted what his testimony was. So when you see his deposition testimony as compared to his public testimony, it was night and day. Were there moments when you were in the bunker, we'll just call it that ironically, um, where there was testimony that you heard that kind of blew your mind, that was eye-popping in the moment, and that the rest of us learned about later? Are there some examples of that? The best example of that was the day that Bill Taylor testified and gave his deposition. And we didn't know what to expect um, from him. We didn't really know what he was going to say. Right, just so people understand, unlike in the public testimony, when the witness shows up with a statement and then reads it and then takes questions, when you did the original depositions, you're operating from a clean slate. Right. So he came in, I think, 15 minutes before his testimony. His lawyers gave the staff a copy of his opening statement so that it could be copied and given to all the people that were in in the deposition. And that deposition, I would say there were 75 members of Congress there, pretty close to it. Maybe Sondland was a little bit more at the time that he came in. But Bill Taylor, there were a lot of people. Republicans of and Democrats. Republicans and Democrats. All three committees. All three committees. Okay. Um, and so there were a lot. And the opening statements were distributed and he read it, and, and you've now seen Bill Taylor, and he has this incredibly powerful, commanding, beautiful voice. He would, he would be a great podcaster. He, he would be a great podcaster. <laughs> very, very authoritative, <laughs> I think he would be. And he read his opening statement, and it took about 40 minutes. And the gasps and the oohs and the ahs that were coming from the members as they were following along and he was reading it, That was, I think, the moment during the entire investigation when I certainly said to myself, 
oh my, there is really something wrong here. This is perhaps bigger than we even expected it to be. What about one of the witnesses who's not as well known, but gave some of the most interesting testimony that Adam Schiff referred to throughout the proceedings in the trial? When David Holmes talked about the conversation that he overheard between Sondland and the president in the Kiev restaurant, did you hear about that in the deposition first also? So we, no. And that was a, an interesting... You did not. That, uh, because we, that was learned later. Yes. So Ambassador Taylor did not remember that conversation. He didn't remember the conversation in which Holmes told Bill Taylor about overhearing the phone conversation between Sondland and Trump. Correct. And so what happened was as these depositions were starting to be released... Another thing that's worth pointing out is that these closed deposition transcripts were released in full. They were? Yes, as as shocking as that is, really only redacting for, and the only questions and the only things that were redacted and the only things in this entire investigation that were really off limits as directed by Chairman Schiff were things that related to the identity of the whistleblower. Every Republicans asked any question they wanted. They had equal time. A lot of hay is being made about this. This is complete bogus. It was just about the identity of the whistleblower. And of course, the whistleblower's information became obsolete as we had witness after witness with firsthand knowledge of the scheme come in and explain things that they were present for that the whistleblower had only heard about. But in any event, Bill Taylor had not remembered hearing from David Holmes a summary of the conversation that David Holmes had with Ambassador Gordon Sondland that followed him overhearing the conversation. And so it was only as these transcripts were being released that David Holmes said, well, wait a minute, Gordon Sondland's deposition or opening statement, I'm not sure which, didn't talk about that conversation he had with Trump on July 26th. And I didn't see it in Bill Taylor's. So this seems pretty relevant to me. I ought to let let him know. So what happened was right before Ambassador Taylor came back The second time, in advance of his public testimony, David Holmes told Ambassador Taylor about that conversation. And then Ambassador Taylor, through his attorneys, told both the Democrat and the Republican staff members about this conversation. And actually, then the public learned about it for the first time during Bill Taylor's public testimony. But we had already reached out to David Holmes' attorney to set him up to come a couple days after that, to be deposed. Give us an example of, if you can, of a Republican congressman with whom you became friendly and is a lovely person. So I have a special affinity for Mark Meadows. He's a very nice man, and and uh, some of some of our listeners may not believe that. No, he, he's he's a he's a he's a good guy, and I, I disagree with his politics. Um, I disagree with the way that he described the facts in this case. Yeah, but he's he's a well-meaning person, and you know I ended up getting to know him a little bit. There were others as well who you know we you just you spend enough time with and you talk to at breaks. Are there some deep animosities personally? You don't have to mention what they are, but are there some? There are some. There are some. Now, can you mention? I mean, what they me are? personally? No, between between members on the other on the opposite sides of the aisle. I I will leave it that there there appear to be some things that are not left at the door of the super secret bunker. If I say names, will you blink 
I w- <laughs> <laughs> no, you can do that because because the audience will not know. If you're, okay, I'll, out of courtesy for your continuing. But I do job. think your your listeners will appreciate learning about the the day that the the super secret bunker was stormed. So I want it. Yes, I've been dying to to hear about from your perspective. So I'll just set it up. There's a super secret bunker, as we've determined. It's a sort of a classified safe space. A bunch of Republican members of the House who were not on any of those committees were protesting the fact that these depositions were taking place in that safe space below uh, the surface level of the Capitol building. Where were you when that happened and what happened? So we were getting ready for the deposition of Laura Cooper from the Department of Defense. And we knew that there was going to be a big press conference uh, outside of the uh, SCIF, outside of the where the depositions were being taking place. And what happened is that we we were sitting at the table getting ready for the deposition. And all of a sudden, the skiff was literally stormed by a slew of Republican congressmen and who all of a sudden storm into the conference room, many of whom kept their cell phones and other electronics uh, on them, which is not permitted in a classified You're supposed space. to leave them outside in every instance, correct? In every instance. You cannot bring any electronics, Fitbits, uh, any Bluetooth things, any phones for sure, any computers that are not screened. Um, it is a very secure place. And it's a risk. I mean, congressional members are targets of foreign governments to either tap their phones or in some way infiltrate. And if they get access to classified information, that could be a huge counterintelligence risk. So a bunch, I don't know how many, I'd say 30 or so sort of storm into the conference room. So what do you do? So we're sitting there and I'm, I'm sitting next to Chairman Schiff and we're talking, you know, what are, what are we going to do here? And and some of them start hooting and hollering and yelling. What it are they hooting? Like, I, I don't know. Like, <laughs> were there they no were cameras literally there, right? yelling. No, they were literally yelling like, all right, I, I can't remember that. Let's go. Here we are. Now this is where it all happens. Let's get on with it, et cetera. And so as it became a little bit rowdier, Chairman Schiff left and the staff followed. Um, and we went into his office. Um, Was and- there actual pizza? We'll get to that. Okay. Um, so this was, I think, <laughs> okay. around 10 o'clock in the morning. And I think I went and, and asked for uh, Jim Jordan and Mark Meadows to come and speak with Chairman Schiff. They had been there all along. They understood and uh, that there had been a ruling by the parliamentarian that members of the other committees could not be there because Matt Gates, who was sort of the instigator of this whole thing, had tried to... Uh, sit in on a previous deposition and was told to leave. So we brought them in, and I think Devin Nunes was there as well, and and we were trying to figure out what what can we do. You understand what the ruling is. Obviously, they can't be there, and they were like, look, you know, there's not much, you know, we don't control them. There's not much that, that we can do. Um, and so we decided, or Chairman Schiff decided that we'll just, you know, wait it out and see what happens. So we sort of go about our business, and they remain in the conference room. And so now the hours are ticking by, and once 12 comes around, all of a sudden there's, you know, an order of 30 pizzas that arrive uh, in the skiff because everyone's just sitting in there. Kind Dominoes? Of, it's, it's like a sit-in. Um, I think Jamie Raskin called it the, uh, <laughs> he had a very funny line about it. it's a, a sit-in for rights that they already had. Um, but in any event, they, uh, they were sitting there and, uh, they brought in pizzas and I went and had some lunch, 
You had pizza? Um, I, I had a couple slices you of pizza. You had some of the invading pizza? Yeah, it was, it was good pizza. Good bipartisan. <laughs> thin, thin crust? <laughs> no, it was actually not that good as a New Yorker. I didn't know you ate carbs during, during the proceeding. <laughs> so uh, anyway, and they we waited and votes came around one thirty or 2 and, and uh, everyone went up to vote and that was sort of the end of it. And we did the deposition of Laura Cooper after that. Did that leave any bad blood or was that just sort of seen as a stunt and everyone moved on? I think for the most part, it was uh, it was seen as a stunt. It was a you know a messaging thing, and I don't think it was a surprise that it followed. It came the day after there was a meeting at the White House, with the president and some of his staunch allies, uh, where reports were that he was encouraging them to defend him harder and more strongly. And this followed. Given how things turned out at the end of the trial, do you and the committee you think have any regrets? that you didn't subpoena, for example, John Bolton and pursue a fight in the courts to get him to come testify? Not one bit. Really? And I think Explain that this that. is this is misunderstood by uh, the public. John Bolton's attorney represented John Bolton's deputy, who, when subpoenaed by the committee, filed a lawsuit, um, which is a lawsuit that was, it was not a procedurally legitimate lawsuit. Whatever the merits were, you cannot, as a witness who's been subpoenaed by Congress, you cannot sue Congress to avoid testifying. It's just not something that that you are permitted to do. And when asked directly, and I had this conversation with John Bolton's lawyer, and I said, what is your client, Mr. Bolton, going to do if he receives a subpoena? He said he would join the lawsuit of his deputy. At the same time, the same issue had been percolating and gone through months of litigation in the Don McGahn case. Then the judge in that case had said there was going to be an opinion coming out very soon after that. It was the clear view of Chairman Schiff and the others who were running the, the investigation that we were not going to play rope-a-dope, as Chairman Schiff says, and get tied up in the courts that even if we were had 100% chance of winning, to go through three layers at a minimum of litigation and court rulings would take months. So you were thinking about the clock, in that regard at least. Well, the allegations were that the president was trying to solicit foreign interference in the election that is occurring in November of 2020. If our investigation were tied up in the courts until after November 2020, which would have been the case if we had litigated it all, then the president wins because the object of his scheme has already come and gone before Congress can do anything to stop him. So in your mind, not a close question, clearly did the right thing. Not a close question at all. Will you subpoena him now, John Bolton? I don't know. I don't know what the answer is to that. I think... um, Is it on the table? Well, it's publicly on on the table, which means that, of course, it's on the table. But I I suspect that there will be some resolution to that over the next couple weeks. All right, so we get to the public testimony, which is what everyone like me saw, other than getting the transcripts of the depositions. You only had 45 minutes per witness after having spent hours and hours with them. Just explain to people the craft of figuring out what the hell are you going to do when you have a tiny fraction of the time, which is the thing that the public is going to see, and you've already said that public sentiment and public attention is what gives the investigation oxygen and and propriety. How did you pick what you were going to ask and go about that? 
it was difficult. Um, the way it, it ended up working is we had a little bit of time uh, before the first hearing. And I think we did three moots at a minimum, maybe three or four moots. Meaning you had someone play the part of a witness. Right. So we were the first hearing was Bill Taylor and George Kent. And so at various points, we had different people playing those two witnesses. Was it always a, a member of the staff playing a witness, or do you ever have a member? It was always staff. Okay. Different committees chimed in, pitched in, I should say, not chimed in. And um, so we re-rotated it around, which was helpful because you want to get as many different ways that a witness might answer a question in order to follow up. But where we ended up was very far from where we started. And the staff that was on all of the committees was it was a full, full team effort. And the, the input from everyone listening to it was incredibly valuable. I, I was, as a former prosecutor, was you know, much more generally, I have a predilection to be focused on the facts and, the, and in the weeds. And there were other staff members who have a broader perspective who were able to sort of pull me out of the weeds a little bit. And that was important. And so what we, we spent a lot of time on that first hearing. And it was almost as if once we got it in a good place for the first hearing, we kind of had our formula. And then we were able to adapt for each subsequent hearing. What was interesting to me in watching is that obviously there's, as we've been discussing, a decided difference between what you would do in a court of law when you're trying to prove a case in a particular way with a particular statute versus what you were doing in a public hearing to make people understand the import of all this. So, for example, I was struck by how you began with Marie Ivanovich and you chewed up precious minutes, which I think was worthwhile not going at the particular facts of maybe what would end up being the thrust of the impeachment articles, but something sort of peripheral to that, but set the stage and showed the context. And that was that she was basically terminated from her position at the same time that she was hosting a remembrance for a very noted special anti-corruption fighter in Ukraine, giving the lie to the idea that the firing of Marie Ivanovich was in pursuit of anti-corruption efforts. Was that how conscious was that decision? It was very conscious. I mean, when when she told that story during her deposition, it was incredibly moving to listen to her narrative of getting this call from Washington that you need to come home on the next plane and your security is at risk, and then asking for more information and getting another call later at one o'clock. And it was really toward the end of that story that we even understood that she was actually hosting an anti-corruption event. But in many respects, that anecdote, which we started the report with, encapsulated the whole thing. And it wasn't directly related to the July 25th call, but the fact that this anti-corruption champion who was hosting an anti-corruption event at the U.S. Embassy in Ukraine got an urgent phone call, basically that she was getting removed from her position And as we subsequently learned, because Rudy Giuliani said it publicly, she was removed to be so that she would get out of the way to allow for these corrupt investigations to occur. And it was we felt like it was a powerful moment that uh, was worth putting as an analogy to the broader fact pattern. What about you personally? So you do these depositions behind closed doors in the bunker, far away from lights and cameras. And you're no stranger to big, prominent, important cases during your time in SDNY, but this is different. You're now the main questioner from staff. The whole country's watching. There is potentially, arguably, 
the presidency hanging in the balance. It was a constitutional crisis of sorts. How did it feel for you to be in that kind of spotlight? I just didn't think about any of those things, honestly. Um, it was, I, I think what I, what I did personally was I went back to my roots. I went back to my experience. I went back to where I, what I was comfortable doing. Uh, and it was certainly nerve wracking the first time, but once you start asking the questions, it just felt like, you know, the hundreds of other times that I've asked witnesses questions. And yes, it's on TV being shown around the world and around the country, but I mean, the room itself was rather large and somewhat intimidating, but you don't necessarily recognize that you're on TV all over the place. And it was really just a function of once it got started, you kind of just get in the zone and you're just asking the questions of the witnesses. The advantage we had, of course, is that we had the testimony for most of them. I mean, some, you know, Gordon Sondland changed, Kurt Volker changed pretty significantly. Uh, Laura Cooper added some stuff. Uh, Fiona Hill added some stuff. I mean, they they were adding stuff, and so we had to respond to it on the fly. But for the most part, we knew what we wanted to highlight. And then it was really just a function of trying to allow the witnesses to bring that out to the public. Here's what I said about that at the time about you on the podcast. And tell me if I was, it was fair or not, because I gave you great credit for all, all of what you did publicly and, and clearly behind the scenes in those depositions. I appreciate that. But I remember thinking, among the things that Dan Goldman has done before, putting aside the lights and the camera and the amount of public attention, doing a 45-minute, basically direct examination of a witness where there are no rules of evidence that apply, where you have the floor, and you have the benefit of having done a nine-hour deposition of that person before, it's not the hardest thing you've ever done. Right. I mean, the hard part was making sure that we got the most important stuff out. I mean, you, you put it right. And narrowing nine hours into 45 minutes was the hard part. But once we had sort of figured out um, no, it was, uh, it was, it felt like, you know, you, stuff that you or I had done many, many times. So you do this for like a few weeks and then boom. Eight days. Articles of impeachment. Pretty quick. Too quick? No, I don't think so. I mean, what you have to realize is by the time that the transcripts started to get released, which I think may have been week three or four after our first deposition, the... Department of Justice and Office of Legal Counsel, and this gets a little technical, but they had come up with a new rationale to block witnesses from testifying. And so whereas a lot of these witnesses in very similar, uh, similarly situated were coming in to testify for the first several weeks, the Department of Justice fabricated, I would say, because I really do believe there's no merit to this, but they created a new rationale to block the witnesses from coming. So we not only had the high-profile ones like John Bolton and Mick Mulvaney and a, and a couple other very senior people who didn't come because of absolute immunity, but they created this bogus rationale that if you are not allowed to have agency counsel in the depositions, then you cannot, it's unconstitutional. So you just wanted to cut it short and just put up. And so we had deposed 17 people, and there, were, there was not a steady stream of additional witnesses that we left on the cutting room floor. Right. That, so, that, and we weren't getting any documents. Right. So, so the so, investigation was pretty much done although, to the extent that we could have gotten anything. In the environment of this political proceeding. Because if you had been conducting this case as a federal prosecutor in your old role, you wouldn't have had the same clock and concern. Although maybe you would have. If there was imminent harm, you don't always investigate a case to death. So I guess that happens sometimes too. Do you understand why... Some people find it odd that having said over and over again to justify and explain 
the sort of hastened process getting to the articles of impeachment in which people said overwhelming evidence, overwhelming evidence, which I tend to agree with, that it became a little bit odd later to say, but we must have more witnesses. We must have more documents at the trial to make our case properly. So there were two arguments that fall into that category. There's the one you just mentioned. And then there's this notion of there's this is so urgent, we need to move quickly. And then the speaker didn't um, convey the articles for a month or so, or the trial didn't start until a month after the articles were. And so if it's so urgent, why did they delay? It's a similar kind of an of an argument. What's the answer? So there, there are two answers. Um, one is we had enough evidence to convict. And because the 17 witnesses told a remarkably consistent story, but there's so much more to know and to learn about. And if you are wondering whether that is the case or not, you need only ask yourself, why, if it's all out there, would the president go to such great lengths to prevent additional witnesses and additional documents? So there's enough to convict. There is enough evidence. There's overwhelming evidence that the allegations that we allege are proved and those allegations, I think, very clearly set forth impeachable offenses. But there's a lot more out there. And it's not yeah, just that the, the Senate needs to know. The American public needs to understand. So it's a different, it gets to the heart of some of it, which is that you have a role in trying to bring forth and develop evidence at a Senate trial for the purposes of having senators decide on the guilt or not guilt of the president. But there's separately from that, a public function in informing everyone as to what the president may have done. And that takes on, I think, two aspects. One is just the public has a right to know whether the president of the United States is engaging in misconduct. But the other thing is more of a political calculus, which is generally the public is slightly in favor of impeachment, only very slightly. But if John Bolton testifies and says, oh, the president told me, as is reported to be in his book, the president told me that I was withholding the aid because in order to pressure Ukraine to do these investigations. That's kind of different in kind from most of the evidence that, that we got. So it is consistent with the evidence, but it is more direct, it is more powerful, and it is more meaningful. And if you want to sway the public, having John Bolton say that and testify publicly or privately that that is the case might move additional people. So they have a right to know, but it also might have influenced the outcome of the trial. Okay, so here's another question that people have, and I've thought about this from the perspective of our old jobs. How do you decide on what the articles of impeachment should be? Why just two? How come it was so broad-based, and I think I have some sense of what you might say, abuse of power, obstruction of Congress, to the extent that there was a case to be made, as your boss made this argument many times on the floor, of bribery or extortion or some other identifiable crime that we understand to be a crime. I understand why you might not want to pick one or the other. But in our old jobs, you probably would have had, you know, two catch-all counts in an indictment. And then you would add extortion, bribery, et cetera. And then sometimes we would argue it's good to give the jury a choice because they can reach some compromise and they can acquit on some and convict on others. That's the thinking that goes on in, in prosecutors' offices. What was the thinking here? Well, I don't know all of the thinking generally. I can sort of relay to you what my perspective was from, from my seat, which is that you're absolutely right. If this were a criminal trial, we would have charged or alleged abuse of power, bribery, extortion, on down the list. And probably also 
you would have added some obstruction of justice counts from the Mueller report, right? If this were a criminal court, probably. I, I mean, I think generally, right, when you are charging a defendant, you charge the defendant with all crimes that you feel like you can prove beyond a reasonable doubt. And the, the difference here is there are political consequences and there politi- there's a political fallout to all of this. It doesn't just end with the verdict, whereas with a prosecution, for the most part, it ends with the verdict. And so you have to take into consideration where everybody else stands. And I think the general answer to your question is the Ukraine conduct was so different in kind from really anything that was included in the Mueller report, which found that the president and the Trump campaign sort of happily received foreign interference and utilized it, but did not conspire to obtain it. Whereas here we have, as a candidate, right, without the awesome powers of the presidency, whereas here you have someone with the awesome powers of the presidency using those powers to coerce a foreign ally and ratchet up the pressure in order to get these political investigations for his personal benefit. It it felt like it was jeopardized national security, jeopardized our credibility, it jeopardized the elections. There was any host of real, viable, important dangers. And I think the theory was you want a consistent and uniform theme that you can not only marshal to the Senate, but there were really two juries. There was the Senate as jurors, but there's the American public. And it was important for the American public to understand the worst conduct, what it was, and to understand it as well as possible. And if you start throwing in the kitchen sink, it muddies the message. It allows for a creative either lawyer or advocate on the other side to twist things or to focus on what is a personal benefit under the bribery statute under the McDonald case, you get into all sorts of very weedy technicalities. And the theory is that abuse of power is the highest crime. It was what the founding of the Constitution. It incorporated elements of bribery, elements of extortion, which were not statutory crimes at the time. And so that seems to be the most serious, what we would call the top charge in prosecutor uh, parlance, the most serious allegation That's what you go with. You prove that. And this whole notion that, oh, you need to have a statutory crime. I mean, this was a fabrication, essentially, of Alan Dershowitz. We're not going to spend any time on that. That (laughs) that just doesn't pass the laugh test. We have too much much else to talk about. And I think we've sold reasonable people on the (laughs) argument. That's not right. He walked back, you know, away from it as well. So then there's this period of time where, as you already mentioned, we weren't clear on whether or not the articles of impeachment would be transmitted or conveyed to the Senate. I don't think it was more than a blip. People like me and others, you know, whose part-time job it is to opine on these things, speculated as to strategy and everything else. But ultimately, in fairly short order after the new year, the articles are conveyed and there's going to be a trial. Let me ask you a couple of personal questions about that first. One, did you maintain, even though a Senate trial is different from a courtroom trial, did you maintain any of the superstitions that we used to follow in the Southern District among them? Did you ever get a haircut during the trial? I did not get a haircut during the trial. I did get a haircut before the trial, though. Which is also a superstition. Can you explain there is the such a thing called the, the trial haircut, where you, you get a haircut uh, before the trial, and then you do not cut your hair throughout the, uh, the the remainder of the trial, which can be difficult when you start to if have the trial a six is long, month trial. It's, it's very. Difficult. I think those people get a special dispensation. You also don't want to show up with everyone wondering, oh, did, did Dan get a haircut? <laughs> you want them to focus on the fact. So you did not get a haircut. I did not get a haircut. One thing that people found compelling, at least I found compelling, 
and tell me if this was an orchestrated plan in advance. You have all this discussion all day long. I wouldn't say testimony because there was no testimony from people other than lawyers. But then Chairman Schiff did something I thought that was very compelling. Day after day after day, he would close out the session by giving a sort of contextual argument as to why this was important and not just arguing the facts and the constitutional principles, but also talking about how important it was to the country. What was the thinking behind ending every day with that? Well, you'll also remember during the public hearings in the House Intelligence Committee that he also gave a closing statement in all of those hearings, which one after the next after the next were better than the previous one. You know, I'm sure you were watching. I was sitting there, both the hearings and the trial, at some point just sort of feeling like I was a spectator to watching a master at work. And, you know, you and I have given closing arguments. We've we've done it, rebuttals. We've done a lot of this stuff. But Adam Schiff is a unique talent. And the way that he is able to parse through to find a theme and amplify a theme, he did it in the House hearings and he did it in the Senate trial. And the the thinking... I think was twofold. One is that the Senate in particular had been bombarded with the facts, you know, and I think even you were a little bit skeptical as to why the House managers needed 24 hours or we took, I think, 21 to I did. To I criticized the that. Case. Why did you need so much time? So the reason is we obviously didn't need that much time if we were speaking to a captive jury that was sitting there, forced to sit there and listen to everything. And then we would have the benefit of a closing argument to uh, summarize it all. You thought people are, people are tuning in and out. People are popping in, popping out. It's like cable television when they cover a story all day. It's like, if you're just joining us, here's what's going on. That's part of it. And the other part is that we wanted to tell the story in multiple different ways. So Chairman Schiff had an introduction of about two hours long, which was a short summary of the case, relatively short. And then... We did a sort of factual narrative or a chronological argument, I should say, sort of explaining how the story unfolded and at every step of the way, how it got, as Gordon Sondland said, more insidious. And that was another way of doing it. And then we attacked the analysis, the argument where, you know, why was this an abuse of power and what what were the the aspects of it that were an abuse of power. And most importantly, we took on a lot of the defenses and in the context of making the argument. And then we had sort of the concluding aspect of it. So it was telling the same story in multiple different ways through multiple different means. And importantly, it would never have worked to just get up there and speak for 21 hours. But we spent hours, I mean, hundreds of hours preparing this to intersperse the witness statements and the documents and the exhibits so that it was not just one person or seven people up there talking over and over and over. From my view, and I know there are people on the other side of the aisle who didn't like what Adam Schiff was saying, and they attacked him personally, and I thought he maintained really an exquisite demeanor throughout all of it because he took a lot of incoming. But what was great about what he did was it was a combination of both, I think, fine rhetoric and eloquence, which by itself can be empty, combined with a complete 100% encyclopedic knowledge of the facts. And it showed that he came to every deposition. And it showed he'd reread the transcripts in all likelihood. And that when the other side would make an argument, including, by the way, outside of the chamber, when he would come to a press microphone 
after the president's lawyers had said a bunch of stuff during a break without notes in a very comfortable way, he would tick off all the reasons why those things were incorrect with citations to the record. And often in Congress, you find people who are all rhetoric and some people are very wonky and they can't combine the two. And that's what I thought made him especially effective. I think that's right. And I think that part of the reason he takes so much incoming is frankly just because he's so good and he's incredibly smart, as was clear, but he's incredibly hardworking. He's a man of incredible integrity. Okay, you got the raise. You got the raise. It's coming. Yeah. <laughs> no, I can't say enough. And I, I worked very closely with him for the last year. And it bothers, it, I'll put it this way. I think it bothers me a lot more when he takes the incoming than it bothers him. Yeah. Well, you're, you're a good staff member in that way and good colleague. Did you ever really think there might be a moment where Chief Justice John Roberts would take on some role beyond figurehead? Yes, I thought there would be at some point that something would be presented to him. I mean, there was one example that we teed up just to make him aware, which was there was this issue that we were anticipating of the White House trying to admit documents in their defense that had been concealed from us, even though they were subject to subpoena sort of using the obstruction as both a shield but also as a sword. And we weren't sure whether they were going to try to do that, and there was no real mechanism as there is in court to limit it. So we wanted to get out in front of it, and we teed it up through the um, the parliamentarian just to say this might come up, just to, so he's prepared. And I think he was prepared to respond if that came about. But for the most part, I think that... There's very little role for the chief justice to play in an impeachment trial because the Senate can overrule everything. Right. But he could have chosen to use some of the prestige of his position, even though he didn't have the power in that spot to make rulings. But then you risk the loss of prestige when you get overruled. And I think now we've got Not only the loss of prestige is that whatever ruling he was going to make in what is as much of a political animal as a Senate trial, impeachment trial is was going to be perceived by slightly more or slightly less than half the people as partisan. And that is certainly a risk that no chief justice would want to take, is to be perceived as partisan. You know, some people are very frustrated about the result. People thought there would be someone other than Mitt Romney who might vote to convict. And I think there's some people who are worried that now the president, having been acquitted, is more emboldened, you see, from the last week that he has removed some people from duty at the White House, including Lieutenant Colonel Vindman, including his twin brother, also Gordon Sondland. And so he didn't learn anything from this. Explain to people, from your perspective, why this whole process and the way it was done, given the ultimate result, which was kind of expected, did more good for the country than harm. Well, the president, as the speaker says, is impeached for life. And that is a something that will never be removed from his record in history. But as we now approach the next few months, it is just very important for Congress to uphold its duty as a separate and co-equal branch of government to provide a check and a balance on the president. And you cannot be so result-oriented that you allow for what is impeachable misconduct to occur, but because the other side has decided that they're better off politically by 
remaining tight and close to the president. It's kind of why this whole article about this being the first impeachment is partisan is somewhat circular. You don't just set out when you start an impeachment investigation to make it a partisan investigation. And at some point, as with what happened with Richard Nixon, the switch flips and all of a sudden people who were very closely aligned with Richard Nixon then went to him and said, you need to resign. This is bad conduct. There has to still be some point, And I think that's part of the reason why someone like John Bolton would have been such an important witness. There's partly a reason why at some point everybody says enough is enough. And ultimately, the Senate Republicans decided that enough was not enough in this case. But they will have to answer to their electorate for why they didn't call witnesses, why they didn't ask for documents, why they voted to acquit. And every day, the more things that Donald Trump does to abuse his power, not only looks unfavorably on Donald Trump in advance of the election, but it also looks unfavorably on the senators who not only voted to acquit him, but also refused to conduct a fair trial. So, Dan, while I have you, we're recording this on Tuesday afternoon, February 11th. And while we're in here, there continues to be breaking news with respect to more stuff coming out of the Justice Department. I see that your boss, Adam Schiff, has put out a statement about these events. And the thing that we're talking about is the sentencing of Roger Stone, associate of Donald Trump, is coming up soon. Yesterday, the Department of Justice, through the U.S. Attorney's Office for the District of Columbia, put in a sentencing submission in which they advocated for a sentence within the guidelines range which is also what the probation department, I think, advocated for as well, based on what the guidelines range is of seven to nine years. After that, the president of the United States tweeted about his friend and confidant, Roger Stone, that this was an unfair sentence and it was too much. Following that, there were reports that the Department of Justice was going to overrule the U.S. Attorney's Office in the District of Columbia and have them submit a sentencing memorandum that would suggest a much lower sentence for Roger Stone. While we've been sitting here uh, talking about issues related to impeachment, that memorandum has been filed, and the government now says that it respectfully submits that a sentence of incarceration far less than 87 to 108 months of imprisonment would be reasonable under the circumstances. It is also my understanding this may change over the next couple of days, but the the breaking news is that all four of the government lawyers who signed yesterday's sentencing memorandum have asked the court to withdraw from the case, and one of them has resigned from the Department of Justice completely. Your reaction? It is certainly the right thing for them to do under the circumstances. You mean the people who withdrew? Yes. (laughs) The assistant United States attorneys who uh, withdrew. Roger Stone was partially charged with obstructing the House Intelligence Committee's investigation into Donald Trump and into the Trump campaign. And it is truly, truly beyond the looking glass at this point that the president would tweet about a sentence of a confidant of his who was convicted for trying to cover up coordination between the Trump campaign and WikiLeaks, in part, and that obviously related, of course, directly to the president, would tweet that the sentencing range suggested by the prosecutors, which, as you know well, Preet, the sentencing guidelines is the default recommendation by United States attorney's offices around the country unless there are aggravating circumstances or mitigating circumstances. They're not always wise. They're not always good. And we sometimes, you'll recall, we sometimes did not in a full-throated way say that the sentencing guidelines must be followed. Although I will note, as some people have been noting with irony today, 
that the Attorney General of the United States, Bill Barr, made comments today about, quote-unquote, progressive prosecutors for not pursuing, you know, strong sentences for people when they, in almost every case, in his view, they should. But to my mind, it's not about whether or not it was appropriate for there to be or, or cosmically just for there to be a sentence of between seven and nine years. What's bizarre, and I assume you agree with this, and unprecedented in my view, is that you have, in any case, by the way, a sentencing recommendation made in good faith by the heads of an office and have that be overruled by the Justice Department, presumably by the Attorney General, that itself I've never heard of because you have that consultation in advance and mostly you stay away from the local prosecutor's offices with respect to sentencing. It makes it doubly, triply, I don't know how many times more, bizarre, unusual, and bad. And dangerous. And dangerous that it's not only the President of the United States who is crossing a political line into law enforcement and basically directing that a sentence should be less, but as you point out, two additional factors make it dangerous. That it's somebody who is close to the President of the United States an associate of the president of the United States, and even worse, someone whose crime involved, you could argue, protecting the president's campaign and the president of the United States. He is wholly, wholly conflicted in every possible way, both generally and specifically with respect to the sentencing of Roger Stone, and yet he inserted himself. And he not only inserted himself, which is one thing, but the real concern here is that the attorney general seems to have acceded to his wishes. And this, once again, is another complete breakdown of the line between the presidency and the Department of Justice that has existed since Watergate and existed in part, was created in part as a result of Watergate. And this is incredibly dangerous that what we are seeing now is the complete adoption of the presidency and the president himself as the client of the Department of Justice. That's what this reads to me as, and kudos to the prosecutors, the line prosecutors who stood up for what they believe to be right and just, and that this is a political intrusion into what should be an apolitical process. By the way, remains to be seen whether the U.S. attorney himself in the District of Columbia resigns, who, by the way, Mr. Shea was just placed there after the prior U.S. attorney was removed. And Shea, reportedly, used to work directly for Bill Barr. So you even have that U.S. attorney being kind of humiliated by his former boss and, I guess, you know, technically his current boss as well. Well, he signed the letter today, so... He did. I guess, I guess, some, people, <laughs> I guess some people want to keep their jobs. But like, you know. The other thing that, that occurs to me is Bill Barr does not seem any longer to really care at all what the optics are, and what it looks like. You could understand whether in good faith or not he thought that seven to nine years was too extreme for Roger Stone. Once the submission went in, which, by the way, doesn't have force of law, the judge these days, in in recent years, is able to impose whatever sentence he or she wants. And the sentencing guidelines that are the default, as you described, are merely advisory. They're not required, as they used to be back in the day some years ago. The idea that you decide after the submission goes in, after the president tweets about it, to nonetheless insert yourself and overrule the decision of those career prosecutors is someone who just doesn't care what it looks like anymore at all. He wants to do the bidding of the president. And there's another angle to this, which is if you're the judge and you get a guidelines recommendation, then the president tweets that it's too harsh, then the attorney general overrules the folks who put the guidelines recommendation in with a lower recommendation. Now, what do you do as the judge How can the judge give a a sentence much lower than the guideline range without seeming political? I thought you were going in a slightly different direction. It puts everyone in a bad spot, but the judge can ask a lot of questions. I saw someone suggest, and I endorse this suggestion, 
she can ask for a, you know, a showing and proof of what the timeline was. Who asked for what? I presume the government will, you know, take issue with that if requested and not want to share it. But we've seen judges in less momentous cases all the time ask about the decision-making process when an allegation has been made that there was something untoward. Absolutely. I would fully expect the judge has to understand why the Department of Justice is reversing their position one day after making it public in a court filing. I would be shocked if she did not pursue this and investigate it so that just for her own understanding as to what the basis was for the first recommendation and what the basis is for the second recommendation. Do you think that your committee or the Judiciary Committee should do something about this? I think Congress absolutely needs to, I'm not sure I would necessarily limit it to Roger Stone, but there's a host of things that are, you know, as a a proud DOJ alum, I'm very concerned about what is going on with this Department of Justice. I didn't pull punches as it relates to the Office of Legal Counsel, but there are real concerns that that office, which has been such a venerable office within the Department of Justice and within the whole executive branch, and had such a sterling reputation as being kind of the objective voice of uh, legal propriety and constitutional interpretation within the administration. And there are a number of opinions that seem very result-oriented, which is never how that office has been, that require some degree of oversight as well. Dan Goldman, thank you for being on the show. Thank you for your service. Really proud of you. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. The conversation continues for members of Cafe Insider. To hear the Stay Tuned bonus with Dan Goldman and get the weekly Cafe Insider podcast and other exclusive content, head to cafe.com slash insider. Right now, you can try a Cafe Insider membership free for two weeks at cafe.com slash insider. And students with a valid .edu email address can now get a special discounted rate. To do so, head to cafe.com slash student. That's cafe.com slash student. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Dan Goldman. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to staytuned at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior audio producer is David Tatashore. And the CAFE team is Julia Doyle, Matthew Billy, David Kurlander, Calvin Lord, Sam Ozer-Staten, and Jeff Eisenman. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.